Cleveland City Council came up with some new and even wackier rules for public comment. Courtney Ustafi will be here tomorrow. She's our City Hall reporter. We'll be talking about that story tomorrow. For today, it is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Leila Tassi. And we got a whole bunch of other stories we want to talk about. First up is the Senate race. Matt Dolan, Bernie Moreno, and Frank LaRose had a debate Monday as they fight each other for the Republican nomination in the Ohio U.S. Senate race. Laura, nothing surprising here. What were the highlights? Yeah, no. I mean, I think Bernie Marino would have played that Trump commercial during the, the <laughs> debate if he could have, because he wanted to remind everybody that he is endorsed by by President ex-President Trump. So that was his big talking point. Secretary of State Frank LaRose wanted to distance himself from Matt Dolan and Bernie Marino as a middle class, regular guy instead of a corporate elite millionaire. And and he liked to say, like, the other two have changed their positions as the wind changed and whatever the GOP latest talking point is. He says he's been pretty steady. And he, I think, has the longest career in politics, so the longest track record to look at. But I guess he was more aggressive than usual. And maybe he feels like that's needed when he's going up against these guys. I, the, my favorite part of this is, I mean, if I were Frank LaRose or Matt Dawn, I would do a commercial with Bernie Moreno as Pinocchio saying, there are strings on me. He is mm. he's basically saying, look, I'm the Trump puppet. I have no decision making. I don't stand for anything. I just will do what my lord and master Donald Trump tells me to do. And he likes me. He really, really likes me. <laughs> what kind of campaign is that? I mean, who wants to elect somebody who basically says, I'm just a pass through. You will get nothing from me. I'm just channeling Donald Trump. And hey, by the way, did you know he endorsed me? Donald <laughs> Trump endorsed me. He didn't endorse those guys. He endorsed me. And and then during the debate, when Frank LaRose brought something up, he goes, that's probably why Donald Trump didn't endorse you. I mean, it's like, that's his only thing. Look at me. Look at me. I'm Donald Trump's puppet. Frank right. LaRose is trying to claim he's a regular guy. You know, not mentioning the fact that he's the dark lord who tried to destroy our ability to change the Constitution all of last year. Mm -hmm. And then Matt Dolan is the kind of guy in the center. I do. He's he is true. You know, he's very much like Sherrod Brown that way. He's the same guy he was at the beginning. He stands for stuff, whether you agree with his politics or not. He doesn't play this game. He certainly doesn't say I'm putting all my voting decisions in the hands of somebody else. Who wants that? Right. Yeah, he doesn't it feels like he's not pandering and the other two you could point at why why LaRose made such an issue, why he put the August election on, why they tried to change the constitution, why you know, who's behind all of that because he used to be maybe a regular guy and as far as Bernie Moreno, like he is completely flip-flopped on a lot of his policies including immigration. So the I think you can look at the track record of Mac Dolan and say he has been a conservative through and through. One of the points that Andrew Tobias has in his story was something about pointing out Bernie Marino's business. And he's like, well, maybe you should ask your dad how to run a business. And I was like, oh, that is a low blow because, <laughs> you know, his dad, they, his family runs the Guardians. But he was talking about lawsuits, a lot of lawsuits filed against Marino and um, his car dealership in overtime. Moreno may have some landmines out there. As I understand it, the people in his leadership Cleveland class from probably a decade ago 
are trying to find the emails he was sending to all of them back then mm. in which his positions are 100% different than what they are today. Uh, it would be very interesting if those do come out to show how he is doing exactly what Matt Dolan says. He's trying to catch the political win. I just am stunned. And, and he might win the Republican nomination. Republicans might want somebody who says, I will make not a single decision on my own. I will do what my Lord and Master Donald Trump tells me. But mm -hmm. that is one bizarre way. Think about John Glenn or George Voinovich. Can you imagine them doing that? The real no. Ohio leaders of the past would not have said, yeah, you won't get a single decision from me. I'll do what I'm told. But remember what we talked about yesterday on the podcast, LaRose is fighting for Colorado and Maine to put Trump on their ballot. Like it has nothing to do with Ohio, but he's saying, I want Trump on the ballot in all 50 states. He didn't even get the endorsement and he's still no, making it he's... his campaign issue. Yeah, he wants to be the puppet, but Donald Trump won't let him. That's what you oh, call geez. a Hail Mary pass. <laughs> It's just the strangest campaign. Two guys that are basically vying to, to have the least amount of decision-making ability because they're just going to have Donald Trump do it for them. It's You're funny because and Andrew says that this kind of has been under the radar compared to the J.D. Vance campaign. I don't feel like that, but we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the likelihood that the courts will resolve the contrasting rulings of late over whether transgender candidates can get on the Ohio ballots? Lisa, is this heading to a courtroom? And according to experts that our reporters talk to, probably yes, because of the inconsistency in, among the county boards of, boards of elections will probably result in litigation. Just to recap, two trans transgender candidates did get on the ballot. Bobby Arnold in Montgomery County, Mercer County, Arian Childry got on the ballot, although Republicans tried to kick her off. But still in Stark County, Vanessa Joy, you know, she uh, was kicked off the ballot by that board of election. Um, she appealed and she said, look, you know, these other two are on. Why can't I be on? They still said no. And the Stark County Board of Elections issued a press release. They said, according to an Ohio Supreme Court ruling last year, they cannot make an exception for joy that's not in state law. And they suggested that she ask Mercer and Montgomery County boards of elections why they differed in their opinion. Um, we talked to University of of Cincinnati political science professor David Niven. He says standards will never really be identical statewide, but they're, here there's the exact same situation that applies. So as he says, that law means that different means different things in different counties. We also talked to Case Western Reserve University law professor emeritus Jonathan Enton. He says this will almost certainly be decided via a lawsuit, either from Joy challenging her disqualification or from Republicans challenging Arnold and Childry being on the ballot in their respective counties. So that Ohio Supreme Court ruling, this was last year, they ruled that the Washington County Board of Election was justified in removing a Marietta mayoral candidate hopeful for failing to disclose his name and a change that was two years earlier when he became a U.S. citizen. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where it goes. I, I In this case... It feels like common sense should prevail. There was nothing on the form that said you had to list your name. There's nothing that is explained to candidates. They have to list their name. And it does really feel like it is discriminatory and that the Stark County Elections Board is coming out very strongly as anti-transgender. It's bizarre to have this situation evolving in the state. 
But and this, w- can it happen in time for for her to get on the ballot? It's, no, it's pretty tight because early voting begins, I believe, on February 19th. So the deadline is fast approaching. Um, it, she's not sure if she's going to file a suit, Ms. Joy. Um, the Secretary of State, on the other hand, through a spokeswoman, said they're not getting involved. They said it's all done at the local county level. We have nothing <laughs> to do with it, and they should consult their county prosecutor. Yeah, I bet if you look at the history of Frank LaRose, he's interfered with elections boards repeatedly over the years. This is an issue that's just radioactive. They don't want to touch it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How many veto overrides might we see for Governor Mike DeWine this week? And Layla, what makes this so unusual is it's people in his own party that are overriding him. That is not a common way that veto overrides happen. Yeah, you're right. DeWine could be looking at two veto overrides this week when the Senate gets their year started tomorrow with their first legislative session. There are these two vetoes on the table for them to consider. The Ohio House has already done their part to override them. One of them was DeWine's veto of a dual ban on transgender health care for minors and transgender women and girls participating in women's sports. And the other is DeWine's veto of a policy that would have barred local governments from adopting more stringent tobacco laws than the state has. Republicans need a vote of 60% in the Senate to override the vetoes. And Republicans hold a supermajority of the 33 seats. The chamber has just seven Democrats. So they're going to, the Republicans will need 20 votes. Seems likely <laughs> that they're going to have them. Both of these overrides of DeWine's were really well-reasoned, very principled. He the, the override of the transgender bill was because he had spent time talking with parents of transgender youth who said without puberty suppressants and hormones, their kids would not be alive today. And he determined these complicated gender care decisions should be made by families, not uh, not not by the government. And the other veto was on a policy lawmakers squeezed into the budget bill they passed last summer to prevent cities from making stricter tobacco laws than those of the state. DeWine took issue with this because he felt that this is harmful to kids to, to let uh, some of these products on the market, um, par- particularly cities were looking to further regulate products that were Um, included like flavored tobacco and things like that that are often marketed to kids. But Republicans are doing the bidding of big tobacco here, and and they're likely to veto this, claiming that they care about small businesses that sell these products. Yeah, and I've mentioned before this has tons of racism in it because the people using those products are largely living in the cities and they're people of color, and the Ohio Senate has proven that it really doesn't care about those people. It'll be interesting if they make a delineation, as we mentioned yesterday, with that Delta THC product that's being sold uh, because DeWine is trying to outlaw that. It'll be interesting to see if they do that in the face of the arguments that this will hurt vendors because it's the almost identical situation with two different kinds of products with two different kind of customer bases. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A retired major crimes prosecutor has pulled his suits out of the closet and returned to the courtroom, aiming to deal with gun violence and other major crimes in Cleveland by winning longer sentences for the criminals. Laura, what makes this role so very unusual? So we're talking about Blaze Thomas. He sounds like a total hero in his three decades as an assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor. He was courted time and time again from Blue Blood Law firms that wanted to pay him big salaries, but he rejected, wanted to stay in the public life, much lower salary with big time cases like helping put Ariel Castro behind bars for life plus a millennium. 
And he retired in 2020 after 32 years. Now he's returning, except he's going to federal court. This is an unprecedented role. The assistant Ohio attorney general assigned solely to prosecute gun cases in federal court, specifically for Cleveland. And you've got attorney general Dave Yost paying the salary working for the Joe Biden administration's U.S. attorney. Yeah, I, the, the, for the attorney general to pay for the position to work in federal court, I've never heard of that before. It's inventive, but in federal court, you get longer sentences. Mm-hmm. And the theory has long been that a very small number of people create most of the mayhem, that it's very rare for people to actually pull out guns and start shooting at each other. And if you can remove those folks from the street for long enough, you bring peace. Uh, In state courts, they get a certain kind of sentence, but in federal court, they go away longer. So this Mm -hmm. is a great collaboration between the attorney general and the U.S. attorney to try and bring some peace to Cleveland streets. Right. So under federal law, you can get a five-year prison sentence for gun cases cases with felons. State law is three years, but defendants can get probation. So you're right, much heavier penalty. And Yost actually has no control over Thomas and the cases he's assigned. This is completely under the Northern District uh, for the U.S. Attorney. And I love his quote. He said, I sued Joe Biden every other week about something, but they stepped up and did the right thing by working together with the state. It's the right thing to do for the people. I probably just lost 200,000 votes <laughs> by saying that. So you got to give Dave Yost's credit and you've got to talk, you know, this is a great idea and I'm glad we're trying it. Maybe it'll be a blueprint for, for somewhere else that's having similar problems. Look, we've seen a lot of mayhem over the past year, year and a half, and people of Cleveland need some rest from it. And one of the purposes of prosecuting people who commit violence is to get them away from the community because they've shown that they can't live in peace. I, I think it's a, a great idea. The U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't have the resources to focus on this as much as people in Cleveland and Ohio might like. So that's why Dave Yost has stepped up with a position to do just that. It'll be interesting to come back in a year and look and compare at how this is going. He's, it's, you're right about it. They got the, exactly the right guy for this. He's been mm-hmm. a dedicated prosecutor, did a full career, put his time in, could walk away, but he's coming back to do this. Yeah, he started in 1988. That was about the same time as Bill Mason, who was his future boss, um, county prosecutor for more than a decade. But everybody that Adam Faris talked to for the story just said he was fantastic, a no-nonsense prosecutor, a keen eye for evidence, got along with everyone, defense attorneys, judges, even criminals. He got them to confess. So it does sound like, I'm really glad this guy came out of retirement put that suit back on and is doing something good for the community. I mean, hats off to everyone involved. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much have Northeast Ohio home prices risen since before the pandemic, which has kind of become our key milestone in how we measure everything anymore, Lisa? Yeah, these are some eye-popping figures, and I urge you to go to the storyoncleveland.com because there's a complete list of all cities in the county. So we did a data analysis, uh, and, and the 2023 median selling price in Cuyahoga County was $165,000. That's up 33% from 2019. So... Um, just realize, though, that this is not the average price. This is the median price. That means half the homes sell for more, half sell for less. The top five 
were all on the east side of the county and pretty much contiguous. So number one was Hunting Valley. These are limited sales, though, because these are million-dollar homes, so you don't sell a lot of them every day. But their median home price was $2.2 million. That was a 99.6% change from 2019 when they were selling for about $1.1 million. Next was Chagrin Falls Township. There was only limited records. That's $900,000. Next was Bentleyville. They were up 58.6%. Gates Mills went up 117.7%. Their median price is now $788,000. Number five was Pepper Pike. They were up 31% to a 592,500. And in Cleveland, uh, you know, uh, the price took a jump. The median price took a jump by $24,500. That's 44.5% up. Lindhurst, my hometown, a $61,000 increase. It's $205,000 now. Bay Village, $357,500. That's up over $117,000. And Rocky River, up 45.5%. They increased by $109,000 on the median price. So, Layla, yours went up by about what you spent to renovate your home, right? Don't, don't, don't even <laughs> I recently, my house that I sold on the east side uh, nine years ago, sold this summer for, and I was just like apoplectic at how much it sold for, considering how much of a loss I sold it for. And I was like, okay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's happening all over the place. In Cleveland Heights, you were up 56%, Chris. Your prices jumped in your city by $63,000. Do we suspect this is because so many people now are working from home and that there's been a greater focus on home because of that? Well, they're saying that limited inventory, and that's been the the bugaboo this whole time. There's just limited housing inventory. It continues to impact the market. And they say, actually, we're undergoing a market correction. Now, what that means, I don't know whether prices will go down or not. Well, we had uh, Megan Sims go to the home show on Sunday at the convention center downtown. And that was my question to her, you know, during the pandemic, everybody was putting money into their house because they were home all the time and they had the time and they really wanted to improve their surroundings. And the people she talked to said, that's not slowing down, that it is, you know, home renovation is just as hot as it was during 2021 or, you know, 2020, which I cannot believe the pandemic. It's been almost four years. That's mind blowing to me. But yes, home is important. And I actually read a really interesting story just the other day about how boomers like me aren't moving out of their houses and downsizing. You know, they either want to age in place or they don't want to be thrust out into this crazy housing market. So they're hanging on to their houses. That's because they have so much stuff. They don't know what to do with it. If they downsize, <laughs> they got to get rid of it. Their kids don't want all that stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Suddenly, we're surrounded by people with coughs, sneezes, and sniffles. Anecdotally, we know we've got bad bugs all about. Layla is one of the people suffering. What do we know officially, Layla? Yeah, the CDC says that respiratory illnesses like COVID, RSV, and the flu are pretty bad right now in Ohio and Kentucky. But in surrounding states, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, their levels are more moderate. And in West Virginia, for some reason, they're they're experiencing low levels of transmission, which that's surprising. They they track this stuff based on emergency visits, hospitalizations, and outpatient visits. Julie Washington tells us that 
flu activity across Ohio and, and really throughout the rest of the United States is being driven by the H1N1 strain, which we used to call the swine flu. The COVID-19 JN1 variant is the dominant strain pretty much everywhere. That's the one, of course, that is really good at evading the, the vaccine. But the best way to avoid severe infection is to get vaccinated. You can still get a flu shot. RSV vaccines are available to folks in certain age groups, babies and senior citizens and pregnant women. So I think our, our, our uh, you know, people, people, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> Do you recommend going on ski weekends for recovery? Well, no, not at all. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, that was my big story was that on the way to our ski weekend this past weekend, I I was starting to feel terrible and and I just I just kept putting on those skis for the kids. I didn't want to ruin their weekend and I felt like a, a zombie. <laughs> I hope you recover soon. Thank You're you. listening to Today in Ohio. That Elyria police raid that has received national media attention because of how badly police bungled it is even more ridiculous than we originally thought. Police had all the evidence they needed to know that nothing they sought was in that house, according to the owner. Laura, what, what details did the owner offer to further condemn this out-of-control police department? This story is full of spot-on, really pointed quotes about the city of Illyria and the police department. The owner of the house is Shivani Tawari. She lives in Medina. She's owned the house for about four years, five years, uh, as a rental income. And the police have visited multiple times. She has talked to them. They have toured the house. She let them in. And she thinks they should know the person they were looking for when they did this raid was never there, never lived there. Of course, the raid we're talking about is where officers, you know, pushed through this door, smashed windows, pointed weapons, threw those flashbangs at a young mom and her 17-month-old baby who was in the house and ended up in the hospital with respiratory issues afterwards. And now that family wants to move out because they're scared and they have, I mean, I understand they're traumatized. And the owner doesn't have anyone else to rent it right now. Plus, she's looking at several thousand dollars in repairs from the damage caused by this raid. And oh, there was a fire there recently when someone lit um, threw a lit cigarette underneath the window. Well, it's so strange that they had repeated contacts with this house and the people there repeatedly learned that what they were looking for was not there and probably never was. And yet they kept going back. Yeah, it, it's absurd. You think that they different parts of the police department are talking to each other because they had come looking for people. She let them in. And then there was a couple other times the police visited for unrelated issues, but they were there at that address. You think there'd be a database. It's like, here's where we visited before they go and get a warrant because they had to get a warrant for this raid. She calls it pure negligence, a display of power. It seems like you go and say anything in front of the judge and they give you a search warrant. That's shameful. And she says the police department is failing, that there's all sorts of violence in the city. And they're instead concentrating on this this house with this family it has nothing to do with it. Well, you hope that this gets a full review so that they can detect the places where this went wrong. Clearly, this warrant should never have been issued. Yes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A key bank survey has some interesting news and some kind of distressing news about how people view the economy. Lisa, what are the key findings? Yeah, this is their annual survey called the Financial Mobility Survey, and they poll about a thousand people about their financial attitudes. They found that two thirds would rather have a job they love than one they hate with a higher salary. 
72% define success on soft life culture, which they say is, you know, focusing on happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. 54% on the other hand say that the hustle culture based on wealth, status, and achievement leads to burnout. Uh, 63% say they value the work-life balance. That's up from 57% in their previous survey. 27% value a high salary, and that's actually down a few points. 60% believe the economy is headed for a recession or is already in one. 59% are cutting back on their non-essential purchases, and 29% don't own a home and have no plans to buy one within the next year, and only 1 in 10 think that home ownership is attainable. I read an interesting story in one of the national media outlets over the weekend that that pointed to all the ways the economy has recovered and all of the big ticket items that have become less expensive. But the story said it doesn't matter because people shop for food more than anything else Mm -hmm. and the food is out of control. The prices are so far up. So even though that's not the biggest part by any means of somebody's budget, it gets all the attention because it's constantly in their face how much they're paying for a tomato or or for whatever they're buying and that you just can't get past that 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 every time and look we all do it come on how how often do you go to the grocery store at Costco and get the the charge and go <laughs> yeah it's like 599 for, for that yeah. right <laughs> even though overall the economy's pretty good that that grocery bill is what really distresses people and i suspect that's why they think we're headed to a recession is cuz every time they go to the grocery store they're reminded that the price of food has gone way up and prices have eased, you know, but unless you're paying really close attention, like if you're really you're like a bargain person and paying attention to prices, you know, they've come down, but not to their original levels in most places. Yeah, right. It's I mean, it's a psychological thing and it's a curse for Joe Biden because he's trying to convince everybody, look, the economy has recovered, but then they go to the grocery store. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Finally, some unexpected news. Despite a year filled with frightening crime reports, homicides actually dropped in Cleveland in 2023. Layla, what are the numbers? Yeah, this is sort of surprising because for the first half of 2023, Cleveland appeared headed toward its recent high mark from 2020, which was 192 homicides in the city. But then, you know, Mayor Justin Bibb reached out to Ohio Governor Mike DeWine for help, and DeWine ordered the state troopers to work with Cleveland police and Cuyahoga County Sheriff's deputies targeted downtown while the U.S. Marshals tracked violent fugitives. And they seized a bunch of guns and they made a bunch of arrests. And then things really did simmer down. And police ended up investigating a total of 165 homicides in 2023. We saw 168 in 2022 and 171 the year before. So this marks a slight downturn overall from that, but it's still pretty significant given the pace we were on during the first half of the year. And, you know, that said, there was an increase in the number of of kids who were killed in the city. 22 kids died from gunfire or abuse last year. That's up from 19 in 2022 and 13 the year before And eight of the 22 kids who died last year were under the age of 10. So it's, um, it's a, that's a terrible, terrible stat. Well, like you said, at the first half of the year, we were heading into record territory. Things were out of control. What last year really proved to everyone is you can make a difference that, that a concerted crime reduction effort can make a difference. For years, people have debated that. Can can you really do anything about it? What are the causes of it? 
But the minute the state came in and helicopters were in the air, the bad guys realized the squeeze was on and they restrained themselves in a way that they had not been. What, what was sad is it took so long for that to happen because things were so out of control. But all of those efforts that Bibb focused on with all of the external help, it did reduce it. If they can keep that up, then maybe this year we can drop again. Well, and we've heard many times that most of the violent crime is committed by a small percentage of the criminals who are out there. You know, most of the uh, folks who are committing crime are sort of low-level offenders who are not doing this kind of, you know, this sort of mayhem in the community. So surges like what they did are very effective. So yeah, it would be it would be great if we maintain that partnership and uh, and and keep it going. You know, another interesting detail of this uh, story was that. Of the 165 cases, homicides we saw, they ha- the police have a solve rate of 76%, which is really much higher than the national average of about 50%. And Cleveland police attributed some of that success to the fact that residents have had greater confidence in police in the last few years, which I thought was an interesting note. That means that they're cooperating more with investigations and helping the cops solve these cases. Um, I-, I-, I think that's yeah. a interesting turn of events, if that's well, true. There's a lot less of that traffic targeting and the profiling. And so I do think people trust more. When we talked to Mike DeWine last week, he said he's willing to come back, but he has to be invited, which I was a little bit surprised at because if I were the mayor, I have a standing invitation. Hey, every three months, come on back. Let's do it again. Let's keep the pressure on. But he did say, look, we're, we're, we're standing ready to help, but we only come in when we're asked. He also suggested that these surges last a few days, which surprised me. I thought this was a much longer campaign, right? No, I were you no, under that like impression three, that it was like, yeah, they can, I mean, look, the helicopters are in the air, they're swooping in, and the message got out to the the people doing this that you're going to lose your vehicle, you're going to go to jail, you're going to get caught, and I think it did pretty seriously reduce a lot of that car theft stuff that was going on. It's a good news story. We just need to get the numbers even lower. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thanks for listening on a Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. We'll be back Wednesday talking about the news. 